Well, hello, everybody. It's nice to be here in front of you again. Um, I'm sure you're all caught up with it, but over the last few weeks, we're looking at who Jesus is. And we had a reading from Mark just before. Um, if you want to find out who Jesus is, that's a good place to start. In fact, the whole book is continually asked the question, who is this guy? And uh, just quickly, you'll notice right there in chapter 1, Mark points out that the impure spirit knows exactly who Jesus is, but it takes another eight chapters or pretty much halfway through the book of Mark before the first person works it out. But that's what we're looking at. We have been looking at who Jesus is over the last few weeks. And we've looked at some of the things, some of the things that people say and how people are finishing the sentence, Jesus is. And so far we've heard that Jesus is worth telling your friends about. We've heard that Jesus is trustworthy. He's able to be understood, not misunderstood. He's the great forgiver. Jesus is love and he's the son of God. He's relevant, not irrelevant. And he's a real person, not a fairy tale. And thanks, Stuart, for putting the Colin Buchanan song in our heads for a week. And last week we heard that Jesus is a crutch. So we're trying to build a picture of who Jesus is and then what that means for us and what that means for the rest of the world. And tonight we're going to look at the idea that Jesus is neglectful. Now, if you stick with me, I'll show you that he isn't neglectful. In fact, he's full of compassion and he's good. And when I say compassion, I don't just mean that he feels some pity and a little bit sorry for us. I mean that he's truly compassionate and he suffers with us. But for now, let's look at what people might mean when they make the claim that Jesus is neglectful. If you watch or read the news, however you do that these days, how often does a good news story make the headline? And for that matter, what proportion of all of today's news is good news? Usually not a lot. And that's because there's a lot of bad things happening in the world right now. There's fires, floods, hurricanes, murders, assaults, disease, pain, suffering. And you don't really even have to read the news. There are probably people here tonight that have been through terrible things and some might be right in the middle of them now. And the truth is that even if up to now you've been extremely fortunate, there will be times ahead when you'll know loss and grief. So we either look out at the world or we look at what's happening in our own lives and we want to know, why did Jesus allow this to happen? Does he know? Does he care? Can he do anything about it? Is Jesus neglectful or indifferent or cruel? Now, when people say that Jesus is neglectful, they might mean a few things, but mostly what they're saying is that Jesus isn't everything that he says he is. If Jesus is all of the things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, trustworthy, able to be understood, son of God, etc., then where was he when I needed him or when some catastrophe happened? Doesn't this prove that he is neglectful or indifferent or cruel or powerless? See, there's an argument that goes something like this, and it's an old argument. It's been around for at least 3,000 years. It's not something that people have um, come up with lately. But it says something like, how can an all-powerful, all-knowing and perfectly good God 
that's the God of the Bible, allow evil, suffering, grief and pain to continue to exist. If he allows it to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be good, but he isn't all-powerful. Or if God allows evil and suffering, even though he has the means to stop it but he chooses not to, then he might be all-powerful, but he isn't good. Or maybe he can and would stop evil in the world, but he's absent or he just doesn't even know it's happening. So he isn't all-knowing, even if he is good and powerful. In any case, the good, all-powerful, all-knowing, the good, all-powerful, all-knowing Jesus of the Bible can't exist. So let's just give up on the idea of Jesus altogether. So straight away we see that one reaction to suffering is to recoil from Jesus. He's just not there. But in the face of suffering, abandoning faith in Jesus won't help at all. It won't help you understand suffering and it won't help you handle suffering. Why not? If seeing or experiencing something terrible has led you to abandon Jesus or just to refuse to believe in him in the first place and there is no Jesus and there is no God, then there is no good. Violence and the crushing of the weak is the natural order of things. It isn't bad for the weak and the powerless to suffer. It's just how things are. If there is no God, then there is no right or wrong. And we really should expect life to be, as Thomas Hobbes put it, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. We can all do whatever we want, whenever we want, to whoever we want, and it's all okay. So if there is no God, then on what basis can we complain about any violence or disease or pain? It's just the natural order of things living in a cold, pitiless universe. Everything is random, so best of luck, hope you're strong enough to survive, don't expect too much, and you might last just a little while. You see, if you don't believe in God, suffering and evil are an even bigger problem than if you do. And we could continue to philosophise about this and put up all the intellectual arguments and talk about new and interesting case studies and examples, but if you really are struggling with how a good, all-powerful, all-knowing God personified in Jesus can allow suffering and evil to continue, then it isn't a philosophical exercise for you. You've either felt the sting of suffering personally or your heart breaks when you see what is happening to people in our world. So right up front, I want to say that when faced with suffering, we immediately have a choice to recoil from Jesus or to go to him. And I hope that I've shown you that to abandon Jesus will only make your suffering turn to despair. But if we choose to turn to Jesus in our suffering, we need to be careful that we're turning to the real Jesus. We have to decide whether we believe that Jesus really is essentially good. See, some people say that everything that happens is God's will, therefore they believe that God causes us to suffer. So when there's disease or violence, they think that these are God's way of punishing people who have sinned. And if you're a religious person and something happens to you, you might ask, why is Jesus punishing me? What am I doing wrong? Do I just need to pray more? Do I need to go to church more? Do I need to read the Bible more? And that sort of thinking leads to people saying things like, well, you're only sick. 
because you have some unresolved sin or your relationship only broke down because you didn't have enough faith. At the heart of this sort of thinking is that what Jesus did on the cross didn't finish the work. Instead, we have to just strive to do enough good things and not too many bad things, then Jesus has to bless us because what we've done. But Jesus isn't petty or tit for tat. He doesn't work through a ledger of what we've done right and wrong today, handing out blessings and curses depending on how our scores turn out. He knows what it's like to have good days and bad days. And he knows because he walked in our shoes, because he was one of us. So Jesus understands us and because of that, it's safe to bring our pain and honest complaints to him. I also want us to see that the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus does not cause us to suffer in order to, order to make us better, more complete people. For example, the Bible says that when we are going through bad times, it's a mistake to say, I'm being tried by God. Why? Because, as we read in James, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. But God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, God doesn't cause the trials we face or the suffering that follows. It doesn't mean he can't use it for good, and often he will, but you might not ever find out about it. So then, if God doesn't cause us to suffer, then who or what does? Well, sadly, we're often victimised by each other, and the choices we make can have bad consequences for ourselves and for other people. Jesus isn't directing people to do awful things to each other because we do it out of the desires of our own hearts. And we have to keep in mind that the Bible teaches that the ultimate, ultimately the ruler of this world, Satan, the devil, is responsible for human suffering. And it's Satan that wants us to suffer. Even so, Jesus might not, not cause our suffering, but some people think that he's indifferent to what's happening to us, that he's harsh and uncaring. Now, far from depicting God as pitiless or indifferent, the Bible teaches that Jesus is deeply moved by our suffering and that he'll bring an end to it. From the very beginning, nothing goes unnoticed by God. So we can read near the beginning of the Bible in Exodus, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were being oppressed... The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. But God is not only aware of human suffering, he's also deeply moved by it. God is grieved when his people face trials. When Israel was exiled to Babylon, we read this in Isaiah 63, it says, In all their distress, he too was distressed. God feels our suffering as if the pain is in his heart. And James goes on to tell us the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And in the Gospels, there's too many times when we see Jesus moved by compassion for people's needs to list. But here's just a few. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Five chapters on in Matthew 14, when Jesus landed, he was on a boat, and saw a large crowd, 
He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. In Matthew 15, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they might collapse on the way. And then again in Matthew 20, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. And that's just in Matthew. We could do the same in Mark and in Luke and even in John. And there's one time in John where John tells us that Jesus meets his friend Martha who has to tell him that her brother Lazarus has died. Now Jesus could have rubbed his hands together and said, here's an opportunity for me to show who I am. Isn't this great? Instead, he's angry and upset, and upset, just like we are when we're grieving. And we're told he weeps. Does that sound like someone who's indifferent or neglectful? Now, there are lots of promises in the Bible, but here's just one from Isaiah chapter 43. And there's a song that goes with this, which you might hear in your head. But it goes like this in chapter 43, it says, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, did you notice in this promise, it doesn't say if you pass through the waters, it says when. When you pass through the waters in the flame, you won't be overwhelmed or burned. The promise isn't that through faith in God, you'll never go through deep waters or fire. The promise isn't even if you go through trouble. The promise is when you go through trouble. God says he will be with you. So you won't be broken by trouble, you'll be refined by it. Now Jesus says something very similar to his friends just before he faced his ultimate trial. And I set this homework this morning, so if you want to read through all of chapters 14, 15 and 16 of John, we can't read that all tonight unfortunately. But right at the end of all that, this is Jesus talking to and praying for his disciples when he's facing his trial, he sums it up and he says this in chapter 16 of John. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, I hope that's inspiring. It is, it's inspiring. But how do you know it's true? Well, you have to go to the cross because it's only at the cross that we can make sense of suffering. When God says he will be with us, it's only when you look at the cross that you see just how far God was willing to go to keep that promise. He was actually with us as one of us in our suffering. And it was an act of compassion when God entered the world in Jesus as one of us. Jesus knows what it's like to feel happiness and sadness, to delight in friends of family, in family, but also for them to let you down. He knows what it is to suffer rejection, pain, loss, grief and even death. On the cross we see Jesus as a sufferer of unjust punishment and death. So if you've suffered unjustly, you see that Jesus is suffering that too. If you've lost someone close to you, 
we can look at the cross and see the father losing his only son. And when you're calling out, why God? We see Jesus doing that too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why did he do it? Jesus knew what was coming. In the garden that night before he was betrayed, he prayed to be spared what was coming. He knew that there was going to be more to his suffering. He was receiving the punishment that we all deserve. And it's our nature to ask God to leave us alone to be our own gods, to have control of our lives and be free from him. But we don't know what it is we're asking for. Jesus did. To be taken away from the presence of God is also to lose the source of all good, all light and all life. So what does that leave us with? Evil, darkness and death. Jesus was on the cross and knew that his father would turn his face away and knew what he was about to suffer and it was for us. So when you look at the cross and ask why are you allowing evil and suffering in the world, you might not get the answer you're hoping for from that but you know what the answer isn't. The answer can't be that Jesus is neglectful or indifferent or remote or he doesn't care. He loves us so much, he's so filled with compassion that he's willing to take on all of our pain and all of our suffering and get what we deserve. Also that one day he can end all evil and suffering without having to put an end to us. So because Jesus was willing to take on ultimate suffering for you, that's your assurance that he'll be walking with you in whatever it is you're carrying with you. But there's more. We have to look beyond the cross. We also need what Paul called a living hope, a living hope of the good that is yet to come. And we see that in the resurrection of Jesus. The physical resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of our final salvation when we will experience the new heaven and the new earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us when that comes, that the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So, if Jesus' resurrection happened, and it did, and that means that our resurrection is going to happen, and it will, then it means that all evil and pain, everything sad, every horrific thing, is going to be swallowed up into the victory of our future glory and resurrection. And that's why Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, who knew quite a bit about suffering, in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, he was able to put suffering into a much bigger context. And this is from 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, But we have, have this treasure in jars of clay to show that, all, that, he's, that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. 
For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, his in, so that his life may also be revealed in our bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And then he goes on to say, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And you know what got Jesus through his suffering? Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So what was this joy? What was he hoping for? It wasn't just eternal happiness with his Father in heaven. He already had that and had to give it up to get to the cross. So what was his hope? What was he missing in heaven that he didn't already have? It's us. We are his living hope. We are the only thing he didn't have in heaven. We were worth coming to earth and dying on a cross. That is Jesus' living hope. The thought of all of us, reconciled, perfect, resurrected, restored, glorified, and in his arms. That filled Jesus with such joy that it gave him the tenacity and resolve and the courage that he needed to go through his suffering. Does that sound like neglect? Knowing that you bring Jesus such joy will mean that he will become your joy and we'll be able to face anything with him. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, some days do feel too hard. Some days we're hurting and struggling, fighting fear and worry at every turn. Thank you that in the middle of it all, you haven't left us to fend for ourselves. Forgive us for doubting that you're there. Forgive us for thinking that you're neglecting us or that you don't care. Forgive us for believing we somehow know the better way. You are fully trustworthy. You are all-powerful. You are able. You understand how we feel and suffer with us. You are Lord over every situation, no matter how difficult it may seem. You are healer and will never waste the grief we carry today. You will use all things for good in some way. Anything is possible with you. Nothing is too difficult for you. So where people have forgotten to laugh, touch them with your joy. Where they've lost the art of mercy, grow compassion and forgiveness within them. Where they've neglected to share bread or medicine or trust or friendship, stir new growth within them. And Jesus, we pray for those who grieve today. We ask for your comfort to surround those who weep. We pray for the peace of your presence to cover our minds and thoughts as you remind us the enemy can never steal us out of your hands. He never has the final say over our lives. We're kept safe in your presence forever, whether in life or in death. So let your presence support the weak, 
encourage the sick, comfort the dying, guide the confused, heal the brokenhearted, soften the hard heart, and sweeten the bitter spirit. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We lay everything down at the foot of the cross, every burden, every care, believing that is the safest place for it to be. We love you, Jesus, and we need your grace. So let the harvest of our prayers be in your time and in your way and in, the pow- in your powerful name we pray. Amen.